we got an awesome passage. Uh, if you open your Bibles to John chapter 2, it's verses 1 through 11. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory in his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are so grateful that you are here with us. We're grateful to have you in our life uh, because we are utterly dependent on you for everything. We need you as Savior, and you are that to us, Father, and we thank you for that. Jesus, we need you as provider we need you as teacher, and so we pray that you do exactly that, Father. We, we need you to teach us this morning. Use these words. Use this passage. Us and, and put it deep inside of our hearts, deep inside of us, to be able to change us uh, and to grow us and make us obedient, Father. Humble us for your word and what you have to say to us so that we can become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I thought it would be a good idea for us to start with the very end of the passage in verse 11 because it, does, it gives us such a great overview of what we're going to be looking at this morning and what we're going to be talking about. John says the first of his, that is Jesus, that uh, first of his signs. Right now, when John uses the word signs, he will use it several times in his gospel. He refers to something miraculous that provides the person who witnesses it or in this case, us, the readers of it, with something deeper, that it provides us with a deeper teaching. And this first sign that John records for us, it was a miracle. It was that. He did change water into wine, contrary to some how people over the years have tried to, to strip him of some sort of uh, power that he is able to do these things, to, to make him more like a man. Like, oh, they say, well, he, he just added water to existing wine that was in the jars, and that good wine floated up to the top, and when they took it out, no. Or that he added something to the water to, to kind of make it taste like wine. Or that he convinced the, the crowd, he convinced the master of the feast that it was wine, when in fact it was only water. No. It says that he told the servants to draw the water out of the jars and bring it to the master of the banquet. The servants did that and brought it to the master of the banquet, and he tasted it. And it says he tasted the water now turned to wine. It was a sign. It was a miracle that is meant to lead us into something that is deeper. See, this story is so much more than the power of Jesus to be able to transform water into wine, which he can do, and he did but he transforms lives. 
He has the power to transform this world, and he did. To transform how we know God and experience him, he has the power to to transform the hearts and the lives of men and women, the power to transform even from death to life. This first sign that Jesus did here at the wedding, John says, one of the things that it did was it manifested his glory. And in John chapter 1, we looked at it weeks ago. In John 1, 14, it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John says we've seen his glory. Like we've witnessed it. And now, beginning in chapter 2, John begins to detail for multiple chapters the manifestation of that glory, what they witnessed, beginning with water being turned into wine. And also notice what John says in verse 11 at the very end, and his disciples believed in him. Right? So seeing this sign at the wedding, it led them deeper into belief in Jesus as the Son of God, as it should for the reader as well. It's meant to lead us into a deepening of our belief. It may be just the beginning. It may be just cracking the surface of belief, or it could be deepening of an already existent belief. Either way, these signs are meant to deepen our belief and to serve to accomplish the whole reason for why John wrote this, so that you may believe, this is chapter 20, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything we talk about this morning is about Jesus. Every main point is centered on him. It is my prayer that the words that I speak from this stage and the words that you hear, it would lift the name of Jesus on high, that the, that the passage that we look at this morning, that it would lead us into a deeper belief of him, and that our eyes would be open, that we would see more of his glory and his power to be able to transform. Okay, Let's get an idea of then what's going on in the story. Verse 1, it says, on the third day. Okay, this would be three days after what we looked at last week with Philip uh, and Nathaniel. So three days after that, there is a wedding. And there's a wedding in a small town of Cana in Galilee. And most scholars believe that this is a, a, a town that's about nine miles north of Nazareth. It's just, it's ruins today. There's nothing left. And Jesus is invited to the wedding. And and so are the disciples. And this is probably the five disciples that were talked about in chapter 1. So, right, we got Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, and then an, un, uh, an unnamed disciple, probably most likely John. And there's also Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and she's there at the wedding, although it's very interesting to note uh, that the name Mary is never mentioned in the Gospel of John. John always refers to her as the mother of Jesus, so the mother of Jesus is there, and, and Jesus is with his disciples, and they, they got their invitations in hand. And that's probably a good idea for us then to talk about this wedding and what it looked like, right, to kind of paint a picture and to, to give context to what we're going to be talking about this morning. So the wedding ceremony, like with the vows and the rings and all that, back then, 2,000 years ago in that part of the world, uh, the ceremony is always connected with a celebration, And the celebration would last up to seven days, okay? Then culminating after the celebration, leading then up to the ceremony itself. So it would be much like uh, maybe a little bit of a rehearsal dinner, but way longer. There would be a lot of people, this big get-together, 
uh, and they would be hanging out for days. There would be feasting and dancing. Uh, there would be food and drink. There would be finger foods and like the meats and the cheeses, char- charcuterie board or whatever, right? And because it's a special occasion, then wine would be provided for all the guests as well. So we've got food and drink for many people for many days. Uh, it's probably good to note, too, uh, like in our culture, it is the bride and the bride's family that, that provides for the wedding. But back then, it would be the groom and his family that would provide everything. They would, they would host it. Uh, they would provide all the food. They would provide all the drink. And the groom then would have picked someone to kind of oversee it. To, to oversee all the operations of the celebration because there's a lot of moving parts, right? There'd be a lot of coordination that would need to happen. And here in John, we see that this person who is managing all of this is called the master of the banquet. So, traditionally, it's a pretty good-sized gathering. And for this wedding in Cana, maybe more guests showed up than expected, Maybe the groom, who remember, he is responsible for providing every, uh, everything for the wedding. Maybe he dropped the ball in some way. Maybe he didn't have enough money. Either way, there is a problem. And Mary comes to her son Jesus, and she tells him the problem. She says, there's no more wine <laughs> right now. Now we think, what is the big deal, right? Like, that's no big deal. You just get one of those big bowls with 7-Up and juice and sherbet, right? And you put it all. It actually is a big deal. For that culture back then, it would be a very embarrassing thing for the groom to run out of provisions for the wedding, right? And it would affect uh, the ability for the, the bride and the groom, the couple then, to, to live a life in their community. The community would most likely label them in some way. It would be embarrassing, and they would carry that embarrassment for a long time, even till death, possibly. But even more of a big deal is that something like running out of wine during a wedding celebration could have had legal ramifications as well. There's evidence that the groom could have been held liable for not providing what is necessary, which then could lead to a potential lawsuit. So the problem that Mary brings to her son is a big deal. It's a big problem. They've run out of wine. So Mary goes to Jesus and she tells him. Now, it's possible that she uh, was helping out with the wedding in some way. She was maybe helping with a couple. Uh, we don't know. I mean, it could have been that she just heard uh, some hearsay that, oh, they ran out of wine, and so she goes to Jesus thinking that he could help. And his response to Mary is very interesting. It's a source of many questions, much debate over the years. He says, first of all, he says, woman. Now, when we read that, I think it's easy for us to bristle a little bit, right? Like, uh, the way we interpret that word used in that way, it seems a little bit uh, uh, disrespectful, doesn't it? It, it just seems a little bit rude, but it's actually not. The word that Jesus uses for woman is actually quite respectful. It would be a very similar to uh, our use of the word madam or maybe more accurately, ma'am. Okay, so, yeah, he, so he says, ma'am, and then says, what does this have to do with me? Now, literally what he says is a bit clumsy in English. Actually, what he says is, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? And then he says, my hour has not yet come, and there is a lot that we could talk about with this, but we just don't have time to. But ultimately, Jesus is saying that he needs to do the will 
of his heavenly Father and according to his timing. The Father's timetable must be adhered to. It must be prioritized above everybody else's, even Mary's. And Mary seems to know that Jesus isn't saying that there's no way that he'll help. It may be not in the way that she was hoping for or maybe in the way that she was thinking that he would help, but, it, right? but she knows her son. So she turns and she looks at the servants and she says to them probably the greatest advice that a human being has ever said. She says, do whatever he tells you. Do what he says. She doesn't know what he's going to do, but she seems pretty confident that he will do something. So that whatever he tells the servants, she says, do whatever he says. And her advice to the servants, like the application of these words, it goes way beyond just this wedding, doesn't it? This advice applies to all servants of Jesus for all time. Do whatever he tells you. Now, the party, remember, needs wine. And Jesus, this is what he tells the servants. He says to the servants, you see those jars over there for washing your hands and feet? I want you to fill them with water. Now, if I was one of the servants, it would be very easy for me to second-guess this, right? To object at this. Jesus, we need wine. We don't need, well, this is a wedding. We don't need water. What you're asking for, it kind of feels like a waste of time. It kind of feels like a waste of energy or, or resources. Why fill them with water when that is not what we need? Your instructions seem to me not to be relevant to the situation. Do whatever he tells you. Yeah, but listen, you know, if what we need is wine, there's a whole long way from wine to water. And we just don't see there's this big gap between the two. We, we don't see how it's rational to believe that we could go from water to wine. Do whatever he says. Fill the jars with water, yeah, but Jesus, the, the well is so far away. And water, it's so heavy. Do whatever he tells you. Fill the jars with water. And that's exactly what those servants did at the wedding. They filled the jars with water. And they filled them, notice, to the brim. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. I love that. Anything that Jesus says for us to do, it is worth doing to the brim, not to hold back, not to do it halfway or, or half-hearted, but to the brim. There's an important thing for the followers of Jesus to do. As followers of Jesus, we are to follow. He tells his disciples to follow him, and the language that he uses to describe this kind of following, it is to the extreme. He tells one to sell everything that he has and follow him. He tells others to, to leave all behind, to deny yourselves, to lay down your life, take up your cross, and follow him. This is not halfway. This is not half-hearted. This is to the brim kind of following. It's to the brim. He says, fill the jars with water, and they, they filled them to the brim, and it says that there were six large stone jars. And John explains that these jars were used by the Jews for ceremonial cleaning of their hands, their feet, their dinnerware, and, and stuff like that. So many people who would have attended the wedding, uh, they would have uh, washed, ceremonial, uh, and these jars were there for that purpose. And they were large. They were able to hold somewhere, John says, between 20 or 30 gallons 
each. And Jesus tells the servants, fill the jars with water. And they did so. And it doesn't say when it happens, but it does. The water turns to wine. It's been said that he makes better wine out of water than humans can make out of grapes. Because he didn't just make wine, he made really good wine. And he didn't make just a little bit of wine, he made a lot. He made a lot of it. He provided abundantly. Abundantly. Because if each jar was able to hold somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons, that means Jesus made somewhere in the neighborhood of anywhere between 120 to 180 gallons of wine, which is approximately 1,000 bottles of wine. More wine that could have possibly been drunk at the wedding. Why? Why make so much? See, in the Old Testament, abundance of wine is talked about several times. The patriarchs, the prophets, they use an abundance of wine as a metaphor to paint a picture, to point to the coming of the kingdom of God and the presence of God and the pouring out of God's blessings on his people. We see it first all the way back in Genesis chapter 49. Jacob, also called Israel, he's got 12 sons, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. And, he's, and Jacob's close to death. And so he calls all of his children to him, the 12, he calls them to him to bless them. And Judah comes forward. And Jacob says to Judah that from him, through his children, there will one day be a great leader. Jesus, by the way, one of his names is the lion from the tribe of what? of Judah. And listen to what Jacob says to Judah regarding this leader in Genesis 49 verse 11. He will bind his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. There will be so many good grape vines that he will use the very best wines for common purposes like tying up animals. There will be so much wine, so much blessing of God with the arrival of this leader, that he will wash his clothes in wine instead of water. Amos 9.13 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. See, Amos and other prophets described an overflowing blessing with the arrival of a descendant of King David from the line of Judah, and this will be a king like no other. And with his arrival and with his reign, he will come with an abundance of blessings from God. Isn't it just so fitting that Jesus starts his earthly ministry with the miracle of making an abundance of wine? See, the day that Jacob talked about, the day that Amos and Isaiah and Joel, the day that they talked about, the day has arrived with the arrival of Jesus. And remember, it was the groom that was supposed to provide everything for the wedding, right? And what we begin to see in this passage, what it points to is that Jesus provides as the true bridegroom. The true bridegroom. He tells the servants, he says, draw from the jars out of the abundance and bring it to the master of the banquet. So the servants, they, they draw the water, now become wine, and they bring it to the master of the banquet. And he tries the wine, and he says he doesn't, know where it came, he doesn't know where it came from, right? He didn't know where it's from. He didn't know. So he calls the bridegroom over. And notice what he says. You, you have saved 
the good wine for last and attributes the providing of the wine to the bridegroom. But of course, the groom would just be standing there. He's just like dumbfounded, staring at him, silent, like thinking, I have no idea where this wine came from either. And this is so cool. See, the master of the banquet and the bridegroom, these are the two uh, that, that would know everything about the wedding celebration and what is going on. Yet they know nothing of the origin of this wine. And these two, who are so central and primary to the wedding celebration, they become secondary in this story. And they also don't know that Jesus, who is the primary character in this wedding, is now ultimately fulfilling the role of both the, 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 uh, the, the master of the banquet and of the bridegroom by providing the necessary wine for the wedding. And this is so, it's so significant for us. Because in the very next chapter of John, in John chapter 3, Jesus is called the bridegroom. And there will be a future wedding celebration that is foretold in Scripture where Jesus doesn't just step into the role of bridegroom. He is the bridegroom and the church, his bride. Revelation 9, 6 through 9, it's in your notes. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we, his people, his bride, are being prepared. And we are waiting for this future wedding celebration of God and his people. And with it, the full and complete transformation of this old world with its sin and pain and sorrow, this is what Jesus is going to do, is, and he is in the process of doing it. The wedding in Cana is just points to it. It is the shadow of the fullness that it will be. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 25, starting in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. This is our bridegroom, and we have waited for him that he might save us, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Gladness and joy, swallowing up death forever, wiping away all the tears. See, as our bridegroom, Jesus will provide for all of that abundantly and without end. Which leads to the last point. He transforms all things. He transforms all things. Jesus transforms water into wine. There's an old poem that says the water saw its master and blushed. The water saw its creator and it couldn't help but do his will. See, Jesus is not limited in any way. 
Whatever he wills, he can accomplish. John 1, 3 tells us that all things were made through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. He spoke, Jesus speaks, and matter comes into existence. If he can do that, then of course then he can turn water into wine. It has to obey the master. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So his transforming power isn't limited in any way. He accomplishes what he desires according to his will, and there is nothing, nothing that will stop it. He has the power to transform all things, and this is important. I bring this up because I want it to be a source of encouragement for us. I I want it to be something that reminds us that we don't have that power, do we? This is who he is. Then what are we? Many times in Scripture it says he is the potter and we are the what? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he calls us jars of clay. Weak. Cracked. Imperfect. For common use. But just like the water, we see our master. And when we submit to him, he transforms us too. What about all the things that we do? What about all the things that our our hands do? What about all the things that we tried, all our effort, all human effort combined? What is that but just water? The party needs wine. But we go get water. We bring water back. All we have is water, Jesus. All we have is water. Yes, exactly. That's all we have the ability to do, get water. But watch the power of Jesus to transform that work. Fill the jars with water. Find a couple of pieces of bread and fish, and then watch the work of Jesus and how he transforms our efforts. Fill the jars with water. And our master, he tells us what to do today, doesn't he? He says, love your neighbor. Ah, but we say, ah, but you don't know my neighbor. They're different than than we are. They're difficult. They're not like us. And loving them, loving them honestly would just be a waste of time. Fill the jars with water. Jesus tells us to love your neighbor. He says to love one another. He says love those who are even difficult to love, like someone who wouldn't reciprocate or return that love to you, even our enemies. Yeah, but my love seems ineffective. And I don't see how it's relevant in the situation. And it's hard to love. Fill the jars with water. So we love and we love and we, we pray for God's love to fill our hearts to the brim. We pray for God's love to fill this church to the brim, to fill our families and our community. And then watch what Jesus does with some jars and some water. Watch his transforming power and how he turns our water into something rich and significant and eternally meaningful. Or he tells us to bring our offerings to him. We say, yeah, but God doesn't really need money. And even if I did bring my money, it's not like millions of dollars, right? If I gave it, it would only be a seemingly insignificant amount. Fill the jars with water. He says to gather. We say, yeah, but what's the point? Fill the jars with water. He tells us to gather, and so we get together 
and we gather and we gather and we gather to the brim and we trust him to make our water of our time together into something that we cannot do, into something beautiful, into, into unity and true worship to transform our time into the very best. And then watch the abundance of that flow over into our obedience and our behavior and our faith and love as we grow together. And then flow over into our community so that the whole world can see our love and, to, and for, us, for them to be able to see Jesus and to be able to glorify him as we gather. He tells us to pray. He says to pray. Don't be anxious for anything, but pray. Don't be overcome by evil, but pray. Love one another and pray for one another. But it's easy for us to say, yeah, but God's just going to do whatever he's going to do, right? Plus, God already knows my thoughts. He already knows what I'm going to say before I say it. So why even say it? Fill the jars with water. Jesus tells us to pray, so we pray and we pray and we pray and we watch what God does then. We watch his transforming power of his spirit because of the prayers of his saints. Watch how Jesus reveals again and again his glory and his transforming power in our lives through prayer and in the lives of those around us. He tells us that we can have eternal life through him. And he tells us that we can have this eternal life by believing. <laughs> I mean, that's just very believing. It, it sounds like the party needs wine and all we got is water, right? Like, doesn't that just sound like, what? That's it? Believe? Eternal life. An eternity with him. An eternity with him leading us further in and further up into everything God has prepared us there's got to be some kind of, what is the work that I need to do for that? Like, what is it that I need to bring to the table? Because something so good couldn't possibly be free. You're absolutely right. But Jesus already paid for it. This impossible debt that you owe for something so special, he paid for it with his life, with his body broken his blood spilled. He took all the sin, all the injustice of the world, all the ugliness of human pride and greed, and he took it all upon himself so that he could offer us the gift, the gift of salvation, that by believing we could accept the gift of God that is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. It is easy for us to say, well, there must be something more for me to do. Just fill the pots with water. And believe. He says, come to me, all those who are weary. Come to me, all those who are carrying a heavy burden, and I will transform that. I will take it, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. And we come to Jesus by believing, believing that he is the Savior, raised from the dead, and that by believing you may have life in his name, eternal rest in his name. Come to Jesus and believe all those who are fearful and watch how he takes that and he transforms it into hope. Come to Jesus and believe all those who are struggling, all those who are carrying that heavy burden, all those who have worry and watch how he transforms that to peace. Your despair to joy, your separation from God, to connection with him 
and a relationship with him. Fill the jars with water and believe in his name. Believe that he saves and that he rescues and that he miraculously transforms the hearts and lives of men and women. So we believe and we believe and we pray, God, help me with my unbelief. And we pray for each other's belief. And we we pray for those that we know and love that their heart would turn to Jesus and believe. We pray for our families and our children. We pray for our national leaders. We pray for everyone that their hearts would turn to Jesus and believe, and when that happens, when there is belief, Jesus takes that belief, and then his miraculous power to be able to transform is truly on display, way beyond water into wine. It is from death to life. He transforms us. He takes us in by faith. He invites us in. He cleans us up. He prepares us as his perfect spotless bride. And he invites us to the wedding feast where he will abundantly provide what that wine symbolizes, the riches of his everlasting presence and joy. That day is coming. Revelation chapter 21, verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. How have the former things passed away? How are they passing away? And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He will transform everything, and he invites you into that. So if you hear his voice today, I pray you don't ignore it. If you hear his invitation I pray you don't turn away. He's inviting you into eternal life. Don't waste another day. Do whatever he tells you and believe. Or maybe you already believe, and maybe he's calling you into a deeper belief, into a deeper trust of him. Then do whatever he tells you. Give something up. Leave something behind. Turn away from anything that would keep you from turning to him and following him to the brim. Because whatever he says to do, it can be trusted. Whatever he says to do, it has the ability to manifest his glory in our lives. Whatever he says to do, when we submit to that and are obedient to him, has the power to transform everything for you in this life and in the life to come. It's so fitting that we get to... uh, take communion together today, and the, the guys could come forward and uh, pass that out. To take bread in the cup, to eat and drink, and to remember him. It says to proclaim his death until he comes back. This is also something that he has told us to do. He says to gather and to remember. To remember that that kind of transforming power to be able to take our souls and change it from death to life, it did not come free, right? That the gift of eternal joy, that the gift, yeah, you guys can go ahead, that the gift of eternal joy, the gift of his presence that we get to experience with him, it does not come free, it is not cheap. We remember the cost. We remember the cost that he paid, that he 
suffered, that he shed his blood, that he broke his body on the cross for us. And if you believe that, and you believe that he rose on the third day, then you are part of the bride of Christ. You are part of the church, and he invites you to that wedding in a future where he will abundantly provide all things and where he will transform everything. But believers, until that time comes, he says to remember. Remember that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Pastor Scott is going to play a little bit. We're going to worship a little bit more together. And when you're ready, uh, go ahead and eat the bread and drink the cup. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we are, many of us in this room, are eyewitnesses of your transforming power, how you change lives, how you change hearts. We know it to be true because we have been transformed. And Jesus, we're so grateful. But we also know that that transforming power through belief, it it doesn't come free and it wasn't cheap. And so we remember to what you did and how you provided. We remember your blood spilled and and your body broken. We remember the cross and we remember how much love How much mercy, how much grace. And we're people here who remember, and that remembrance then leads us to gratitude. So thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.